so I'm going to speak to you a little bit today about sleep. Um, I've just under an hour to talk to you, so it might be a bit of a whistle-stop tour. Um, and some of the things that we're going to be thinking about today are, are what you can see on screen. We're going to be thinking about, you know, the physiology of sleep, you know, what's actually going on biologically for our children. Um, we're going to think about maybe sensory impacts and, and differences uh, that may impact on a child's capacity for for engaging in sleep and staying asleep, very lightly touching upon medication, not going into medication in too much depth. I'm going to think about routines and environments that are going to be really supportive of sleep. There's quite a lot of things we're not going to talk about today. One of those things is continence, because um, that could be a whole hour, I think, talking by itself when we're, when we're talking about continence and sleep. Um, so that's roughly what we're going to be thinking about, about in, this, in this sort of session. So I want you to think about your young person. You know, the majority of people in the room are parents or carers or, or professionals who have experience of working with young people who might display any of these particular difficulties, you know. Uh, for the majority of people in the room, can I, can I ask who sleeps poorly themselves? Who can't sleep very well themselves? Quite a few people. Who has children who don't sleep particularly well? Right, okay. Um, yeah, so, so some of us might experience these things ourselves, but there's certainly things we'd notice in our children. Um, and I suppose none of us are born parents, and none of us are born parents of children with additional needs and we kind of learn as we go we find a best fit model you know we, we often look at look at information and take advice but the settings we live in are all very unique as are our children so you know take what I'm presenting today what's what's relevant for you some of it will be some of it won't be you know I'm hoping that you take away something that that's that's useful to you today um, so sleep generally is something that we all experience. It's it's not wakefulness. It's it's the, you know wakefulness is the absence of sleep, but sleep's where our bodies kind of repair themselves. You know we, we lose consciousness. Our bodies do a lot of repair. Um, if you think about when you're going outside on a day like this, if you're lucky enough to have a garden and you do a day's hoeing and weeding and bending over and squatting and the sun on the back of your neck, you certainly feel it at the end of the day when you're all creaky and achy and, and feeling a bit sandpapery. Um, and, and, and often the, the morning after you wake up, you might still feel it a little bit if you haven't done it very regularly, but you'll be somewhat less achy than you were when you went to bed. The body has a, a natural way of repairing itself during sleep. And our sleep, our sleep occurs in, in various cycles. Uh, there's different phases of sleep. And the main two are REM sleep, you know, which is rapid eye movement sleep, and, and non-REM sleep. Uh, we're going to have a little look at these as well. So during non-REM, you know, our, our, our muscles experience blood flow, our energy is restored, tissue growth and repair can occur. And, you know, we have a, a range of hormones and chemicals that are released through our system that can be suppressed when our body's busy doing other things. During REM sleep, that's when we experience dreaming um, and we become more immobile, our breathing changes, our temperature changes, our heart rate changes. And a lot of babies spend about 50% of their time in both of these states, um, if we're lucky. You know, some of you might have experienced babies from birth at it feels like they've never slept and they're 12 now, you know. Some of you might have experienced that. But for the majority of, of children who are neurotypical, it's not me, is it? 
No. Uh, about 50% of their time is, is spent in both those, those kind of phases. And by six months, REM sleep is reduced to about 30% of their sleep. And by preschool, you know, this sleep cycle is often about every hour and a half. I was just listening to this lady at the front saying, what was it, two and a half hours sleep you've had? Which means your child's had three hours because <laughs> you've got that, that extra half hour of busyness. Two, two cycles. Two cycles, yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing, isn't it? You know, every child is unique and how their brain is wired, how their brain chemistry functions, how their central nervous system functions, combined with any other medical difference or experience they have, will very much determine how they sleep and how much sleep they need to function. So during the first stage of sleep, you know, which can often take, it's about five to 15 minutes for the first stage. We're often in a very light, sort of dozy stage, not quite unconscious. We have a sense of falling. Anyone had that thing where you kind of jerk, sort of jerk awake? And that's often during stage one of sleep. And, and for some people, they, they never kind of get past that. You know, if, if you have children who, I don't know, I can remember my eldest daughter, and I think for the first two years of her life, I was terrified of flushing the toilet when she was in bed. You know, any kind of noise I could minimise, we'd, we'd try and, and... And really, looking back now, I was a bit daft. You know, I, I, was try, I was trying to make a difference, but what was going on for her was internal. It wasn't external, the, the, the things that were stopping her from sleeping. In phase two of sleep, you know, we're in, a, in, in quite a light sleep. Our body temperature starts to drop. Our heart rate can slow and non-REM sleep can occur. You know, we, we kick into the second phase of sleep. I'm certainly of a woman who's hit a funny age and having tropical moments every now and again. So my body temperature tends to fluctuate throughout the night. Um, so my, my stages are all kind of confused at this stage of my life. Um, by stages three and four, we, we're having kind of slow wave delta wave sleep. Um, it's slightly deeper than stage two. And this is where kind of our bodies can start repairing itself. You know, blood flow shifts. We can have uh, non-REM sleep and, and sort of our bodies in a, in a, in a more, more settled state of relaxation and ability to kind of process. By stage five, we can start experiencing dreams. Our brain activity is similar to, to waking levels. And, and rapid eye movement can occur. So you've probably seen um, some neuroimaging online. If any of you have done any independent research on sleep about brain activity and what's actually going on. So just a different representation, really, of the different sleep-wake cycles. You know, for the majority of people, and I say the majority, but it's certainly not all. The, but I say there's a strong percentage of people in this room whose sleep pattern won't follow this nice uh, sequential phase. Uh, we move between those different sleep sense, sleep states in about, in about 90 minute cycles, as this lady said. But as we know, it's when these stages are blurred or overlap that, that problems occur. It's when people's neurological state and brain state doesn't allow for that to happen. And there's a variety of reasons of why that can be. But in typically developing children, you know, between three and five years, you would hope that a, a small child or toddler will be sleeping 11 to 13 hours. You dream of that, don't you? <laughs> this lady dreams of that. Um, they should experience difficulty falling asleep and waking during the night. That's quite common. Um, they're starting to develop their own imagination and often night fears and nightmares are very, very common. And sleepwalking and sleep terrors should be at their peak. As I say, this is in neurotypical children. By the ages of six to 13, 
a bit less sleep, you know, maybe they need nine to 11 hours in terms of their physical development and their brain development. They can often experience increasing demands. So they're often accessing school and education. There's, they have to work a bit harder. It's not just, not, life isn't just play-based all the time. They can become more interested in forms of media. I've yet to meet a child over the age of six who doesn't have some kind of tablet or, or technical device. Um, they have access to caffeine products, whether that's uh, tea, coffee, Coca-Cola, other kinds of uh, soft drinks. Um, and some of this experience can lead to difficulties with them falling asleep. Often children between the ages of 6 to 13, I find it very rare to meet with families now where there isn't some kind of screen in the bedroom. Um, often bedrooms appear to be fun palaces nowadays with... It's, it's like going to a hotel, going into a child's bedroom. You know, there's gaming devices, there's, there's sensory cushions in one bit, there's fairy lights around the headboard. You know, it's not kind of... It, they don't look like cells anymore. When I, was, when I was young, we didn't even have heating in the bedroom. It was a place you went just to sleep. There was nothing else to do in there. It was quite a boring place. Um, and from years 13 upwards, a bit less time needed, eight to nine hours usually, and by 16, only about eight hours sleep. These are aspirations for a lot of parents in the room, I'm sure. Um, but there's particular reasons why a child who's, who's neuro, who has neurodevelopmental need, their brains operate differently. We know the brain is different for children with autism and with ADHD. We know there are parts of the brain that take longer to develop. And we know that the chemicals in the brain operate in a different way. Most mammals have circadian clocks, and these generate a variety of rhythms within our biological systems. And they're often entrained by the light-dark cycle. So we have a lot of internal clocks that tell us when we're tired, uh, when we're hungry. They're kind of internal cues or clues to, to give us information about what it's the right time for. And as we know with children who are you know, neurodevelopmentally challenged, they don't always get those cues. You know, we know a lot of children don't recognise when they need to go to the toilet, uh, when it's time for bed. They don't pick up on the social cues either. So we know that individuals who have neurodevelopmental challenge, those circadian clocks do not work as well as in the neurotypical. So most mammals show circadian patterns. Uh, and melatonin is secreted by the pineal glands. So melatonin... Um, we can get on prescription, but it's something our brains produce naturally. When we're exposed to bright lights during the day and the biological night, this should stimulate, when it gets dark, the onset of melatonin production. And, and what we often find is that that is not the case for some of our children. Often, by the time the daylight is diminishing, a child's sense of arousal is at, is at the wrong stage. They are from working in a completely different state. Tony was mentioning earlier about how our bodies produce cortisol. And what this image represents is the ideal way that melatonin and cortisol should be produced if somebody's circadian rhythms and biological systems adhere to the light and dark cycle. Between 2 and 4 a.m., we should have a peak of melatonin production. And what we often find is that our children, in about two, between 2 and 4 in the morning, can often be at their peak alert stage. It's the, if you, you know, if you switch the clock, you know, 12 hours difference between two and four in the afternoon, they're probably at their most sleepy and dopey. 
you know, come in after lunch in a school setting, head on the desk wanting to snooze. That's if they're not doing that first thing in the morning when they come into school, which might be some teacher's experience or some parent's experience. Even trying to get a child out of bed in the morning can be an enormous challenge if they've only just fallen asleep at half past five. Um, so they're kind of in a permanent state of jet lag. Our kids are often on Tokyo time. And we know that their clocks are often compromised. And what we've got to think about is what, what do we have the capacity to, to change, if anything? You know, their neurological systems are, are biologically set. That's not something that we can kind of get in there with a hammer and chisel and change in any particular way. So there's a range of sleep-wake disorders that are linked to um, problematic sleep. Some of these you'll be very familiar with. Hypersomnolence is when you're kind of feeling dopey and drowsy in the afternoon and at the wrong times of day. Insomnia, that's just for people who can't sleep at all. And some of us can go through phases of insomnia. So we know that external pressures in life, things like stress, um, when we're worrying about a sick relative or our child's having a different, difficult experience, sometimes we won't sleep very well. There's often um, problems with melatonin production, so a lot of families will seek some guidance from their GP or, or paediatrician and might get some assistance with that. Breathing-related disorders, there's a lot of research out there that has said, you know, some children, uh, there was a whole batch of children, I think, who had ADHD and they all had their tonsils removed and all of a sudden they started sleeping better and the ADHD symptoms reduced. So there's often breathing-related disorders, um, circadian rhythm disorders, Restless leg, anybody got a restless leg, a windmill in the bed? Yeah, a few, <laughs> a few hands up. Um, substance and medication-induced sleep disorders. So your child might be medicated for a particular medical reason, and that can really impact on their sleep. So some of the REM sleep behaviour disorders, you know, that's often... Um, so during the paralysis that normally occurs during REM sleep, this, this person can often act out his dreams... Uh, they can be characterised by having very vivid or violent uh, or intense dreams. Um, my husband once went through a phase. I think he'd been... He, he used to work nights in one setting, and he was... The, the, I think they had burglars try and break in, and they were held up. Him and his colleague were held up at gunpoint at one. And it, it, for months afterwards, he had this really bizarre episode where I'd wake up, and he'd be jumping up and down on the quilt at the end of the bed... And gradually he'd wake up and I'd say, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? And he'd be, in his dream, a firework had come through the window and our bed was on fire and he was putting out the fire, you know. Another time he woke up in the street and it was only the cold that woke him up because he'd actually hit the street. Um, and another time I caught him punching the pillow. Gratefully, it was his pillow and not mine. Um, but that was only a phase and that was, that was triggered by a particular event. But lots of young children can, can you know, live out their dreams in, in their sleep. Non-REM sleep arousal disorders, they can often... Um, they're not caused by underlying conditions and they're typically treatable. So often a, a GP or a, a paediatrician can often help support with that. And this can, do with, can be to do with confusional arousal, not being sure why they're awake. They can be sleepwalking, sleep talking, they can have sleep terrors. And, you know, for those people who are, are in the right frame of mind, some sleep sex, uh, some hands up who's experienced that, and there were no hands in the room. No, no. Okay. Uh, there's narcolepsy as well, and that's a sleep disorder characterized by excessive sleepiness. And this can be brought on by people laughing. Um, you know, it's to do with par partial or total loss of muscle control. Um, and that can be 
can be really significant and, and put people in a very vulnerable position. I don't know if any of your children have that. But it has a huge impact on people being able to function in, in any kind of social or independent setting. So sleep difficulties with children with neurodevelopmental need. We know that it's higher than in the, in the average children's population. They often sleep up to at least three quarters of an hour less than their peers. They always have poor circadian rhythms. They often have difficulty understanding social cues. So everyone else in the house might be brushing their teeth and getting their pyjamas on, it's dark outside, but doesn't mean anything to me. Um, the melatonin production is skewed. They often have um, night waking and early morning rising. I remember talking to one family and there were huge issues of a weekend. The parents desperately, desperately wanted to lie in. And there, were, there was huge conflict within the family because this little boy was pinging awake at like, I don't know, quarter to five, five o'clock. And the rule was of a weekend, nobody was allowed downstairs before half past seven. Well, this boy was just tearing the wallpaper off, you know, his boredom levels were extraordinary. And there was huge conflict in the family until they kind of reordered their, their rule system. I think they could have done with some of Justine's flexible rules here and been a bit more person-centred in that household. There's often an abnormality in the cerebellum vermis, so there's brain difference that we can't change. There can be abnormality within the limbic system. Tony was showing you some diagrams this morning about the limbic system. So if we think about human beings and mammals being linked in terms of um, anyone with a spinal cord and a central nervous system that will have some kind of limbic and emotional system, but they'll also have very, very specific differences in, in how the brain operates. <coughs> There's a lot of comorbidity that can increase difficulty, things to do with anxiety or learn a difference or cognition. Often an inability to welcome or be able to adapt to new routines or change. And they're all very common with children with neurodevelopmental need. So, so for those of you who've got multiple children in your household, who one wants the light off, one wants the light on, one wants the window open, one wants the window closed, Mum, I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm thirsty, I need a blanket. Finding that just right phase uh, to be able to sleep can be really, really tricky. And we know a lot of our children have a lot of sensory integration difference. And finding that just right phase is really important. Tony spoke a lot this morning about anxiety and stress. You know, and stress can be quantified as having been feeling overwhelmed, there's too much going on, there's too much stimulus. But equally, for some children, it can be not enough. Um, we know that we have seekers and avoiders, you know, and, and everywhere on that, kind of, uh, on that kind of continuum, our children will lie somewhere they need more of something or less of something else. Um, and thinking about sensory difference um, is really important to think about helping that individual find what's right for them. Is it a need or is it a want, you know? Is there constant request for another drink or another trip to the toilet actually something they need? Or is it just a delaying tactic, as Tony was talking earlier, because being able to relax is very difficult, being able to let go of things at the end of the day is very difficult? Or is it something that's actually a desperate need to make them feel just right? Are they a seeker or an avoider? You know, do they need more of something or less? 
Um, I think it's always worth bearing that in mind. And the difference between all our children is you might have three or four children in your household. You all have very, very different profiles, very, very different needs. Um, so juggling that as a parent, I, I just see a room full of Chinese plate spinners uh, trying, to, trying to meet everyone's needs. So in terms of sort of olfactory need and, and the smell sensation, you know, for some children, having, having the scent of lavender, I talked to one family, their boy, every night after his bath, they give him a, a lavender oil massage. They find that very helpful for other children. Any kind of difference in smell is a big no-no. So whatever I'm talking about here, you'll be able to determine whether it's too much or not enough for your child. Um, I can remember being about 11 and, and my cousin was born and my mum and I went over to babysit and... You know, I'd never been involved in babysitting another baby. I was the youngest in my family. And my mum, the first thing she did when she went into my auntie's house was spray my auntie's perfume on her so that she'd smell like her in the dark. Um, you know, sense and distractions. There was another family told me that their little boy couldn't sleep. And when I talked to him, he said there was a stinky pipe outside his bedroom window. Uh, so it was a drainage pipe. In terms of taste, taste can be tricky. You know, a lot of our children don't like the taste of toothpaste or the sensation of taste, and you can get uh, flavourless toothpaste that is available. So if you still want your children to brush their teeth, having a taste. Some children like the same taste in their mouth all the time. They might have a very limited food intake. They might be children who have a beige diet and not necessarily want any flavour sensation. Or other children might really seek strong flavours. They might still like the taste of the last meal in the mouth, if only you could make toothpaste taste like spaghetti bolognese or whatever <laughs> the first thing is. Or the taste of medication might, might leave a nasty taste, an aftertaste in their mouth. In terms of auditory sensations, you know, um, cotton wool is certainly something I experience. I have a husband who snores like a tractor. So for me, having cotton wool in my ears every night uh, is a necessary medium. Um, you can get different silicone and me memory foam earplugs, and some children don't like the sensation because if they've got any levels of anxiety, they want to be able to hear if danger's coming and they might have a need or a sense of needing to be in control. For other children, that's quite helpful. Having white noise in the background, so having this fan in, in the bedroom is really, really helpful, or having some kind of talk radio on, very, very low, um, as opposed to louder music or louder sounds. Natural sounds can be quite pleasant. So some people play like, you know, water, water sensation and water motions. Or if you've got a water feature in your garden, having the window open so they can hear that. The decor in your actual bedroom. So the bedclothes might be rustly or the curtains might be of a particular fabric that catches on something. And that might be an irritant for them as well. In terms of proprioception and muscle movement, um, you know, the things to do with movement and moving about in terms of sensory. You know, often you would hope that a child going to bed would be able to relax and be still, but for some children who seek more, having a weighted blanket or tight pyjamas, so there's that feeling of restraint, or a stretch tube, you know, that you can get that stretchy fabric from a fabric store and wrap it so it's just a tube and pull it actually over the mattress so they're kind of wedged in like a little tight sardine. Um, pushing and pulling kind of sensations. I noticed that this hall is called the Temple Grandin Hall. Uh, those of you who've seen the film Temple Grandin will recognise the part where she puts herself in the cattle brace to feel kind of safe and contained, and that's often very helpful for children. And having something to chew on, 
I had a daughter who had no sleeves left on anything she had that was long sleeve, pajamas, school jumpers, anything, everything was frayed. She was a nibbler. So uh, discovering jewelry was a godsend for me. Um, in terms of vestibular, vestibular is about balance and rear balance. And it's quite hard to kind of incorporate vestibular activities in bed unless you sleep in a hammock. So it might be that if your child's a seeker of vestibular activities that you plan that into their sensory diet prior to bedtime so that their need is met. Um, in terms of tactile or touch sensations, you know, the type of fabric that you use on your bedclothes, any particular nightwear, textured covers, etc. Um, that's really worth considering. So the lights in the room, I used to use a 10 watt bulb, but they were in the days before you could get these colored LED lights. So sometimes having the colored LED lights can be really, really helpful. And for some children, they need complete blackout. Um, for others, they need some kind of stimulus. Um, but, but visuals, the type of curtains, the light shining through the curtains, the color of the curtains, the lights that's reflected on the ceiling from the traffic passing outside, all those are kind of contributing factors to, to being barriers to sleep, really. And any kind of visual distractions, you know, I think uh, Simone was talking earlier about how successful the football team's been here. And, you know, we talk to lots of families where they tell me they've kitted out their child's bedroom and it's all red and white or it's all blue and white and very strong, bold colours. And really, if they considered making it more neutral in tone, they might have a different result. So in terms of environments, the environments our children sleep in, you know, we've got to think about their internal environment the one within the setting that they're in and the external environment. And, you know, if we're thinking about internal environments, they're things we've got control of. We haven't got control over the street lighting, then the time the birds wake up in the morning, our noisy neighbours, all those kinds of things. Um, but they're just things to consider and you've got those on your slides. The household you have, I, th I think I was talking to one mum and her son refused to sleep and he kept saying the boiler made a funny noise. The boiler made a funny noise. And at half five every morning, the water pipe kind of started humming. And, you know, she just got somebody in to check a boiler and check a plumber. And I think she had an airlock or something, and that sorted that out. But if you've got a washing machine going on late, the vibrations in the house could be the thing. You know, I don't know whether any of you have done like a bit of a recce around the house and seen what it's like in different rooms. For some of you, you might have had to sleep in the same room as your child if they don't sleep without you. Um, but it's sometimes a really good experiment to go around and do a bit of an exploration, you know, exploration around the household about what sounds different from where. Um, we swapped rooms with our children. We've got like the smaller room in our house because um, the noise we were in was quieter for them. I don't know which household is yours. Are you the noisy one or the quiet one? Um, Sometimes, again, if we think about, you know, what do you need as a family? Some children thrive on interaction and noise and busyness and chaos. And for them, that's their norm. And for others, they're the family on the right. I like to think I'm the family on the right, but my neighbours might tell me otherwise. Um, but it's tricky because no one can afford to move house just to get a better sleep, usually. Um, so all we can do is try and address the things that within our power to. And often working with the internal system of our young person. You know, I think uh, people have mentioned earlier today that our children have very different experiences when they're away from us. They often come home. I think Justine described that children can kind of contain in school and then they go home and 
there's these big floodgates and often children will save those floodgates till just about bedtime, won't they? You know, while they've got distractions after school when they're doing fun things, whether it's activities outside or, or killing zombies or Fortnite seems to be very popular. Um, when they're not distracted by something else, when they're actually stopping, I think Tony said, you know, often we get stressed when we stop. That's often our children's experience. And when we expect them to be able to transition from being distracted and busy to relaxing, that transition is really difficult if all their internal stuff isn't processed. And often there's a dependency on you. You know, if, there's, if you're a family where there's two caregivers in the household, one of them seems to be the preferred one for getting that young person to sleep. It might be you. Nobody reads a story like you. No one calms me down as quick as you. You're the person I need to. And it's often you, you, you. And, you, you know, like this lady who's had two and a half hours sleep, you're on duty 24-7. And it often feels really difficult to be able to pull away from that because, as Tony said, young people whose executive functioning might be a third behind their chronological age and their emotional level of processing isn't as mature as their physical system. They depend on you to make things feel better. But the more we can increase how we externalize things for them, does it have to be you or could it be the virtual you? You know, many parents tell me that they'll record reading a story onto an MP3 player so their child can listen to their favorite story with headphones on so it doesn't have to be you in the room. Or whether there's a photo of you next to your bed and you've coached them through kind of a, a safe space visualization where there's a photo of you in their favorite place at that great day out that you had. So they can think about that memory and, and develop some independent strategy of self-calming. Even if it's not as they're falling asleep, but if they wake up at two and three in the morning and they can see that image and hear that voice, you don't have to be the person who's getting them out of bed. Processing a lot of bottled up emotions is really tricky and I know the therapeutic team from here are going to speak after me so I'm not going to go too much in depth into that but I suppose there's a range of ways that we can externalise ways of our young people processing that doesn't have to be verbal and face to face with us. I mean I'm not going to do this but if I snuck up behind you and stabbed you with a pin not going to but if it did you're likely to have this really high sense of arousal there'd be a big shock a big reaction you'd feel the pain you'd have that level of surprise and you'd be on high alert if i told you i was going to come up and hit you with a pin you'd kind of be ready for me it'd still hurt and you'd still be kind of oh didn't like that but your arousal wouldn't have been as high as if i'd snuck up and done it if I said to you, I'm going to give you an injection every day because unfortunately you've got diabetes, over time that sense of arousal would reduce. And what we know about our young people is that when they remember the thing that triggered the difficulty for them, it could have been a verbal interaction, it could have been something they failed at at school, it could have been falling over, it could have been the puppy not running to them and running to their sister. Whatever that thing was, their sense of arousal tends to be up here every time. So helping them find ways of reducing that is, is really, really key. And we know that our children struggle with that enormously. So finding ways, external mechanisms that help them do that, whether it's visual things on the wall or it's auditory things that they can listen to, that's really helpful. We've spoken about finding that just right phase. 
And I suppose for sleep for our children, you know, is it too much or is it, is it not enough? What is it they need to feel that just right phase, particularly in terms of their emotional arousal? So if we know that while they're busy, they're not processing their emotions, we need to build in some time where that can happen. I think Justine said, walking the dog around school, people talk to her. So finding activities where those kind of conversations can happen, but it's not just sitting there face to face or lying in bed and talking about it, which puts their arousal up there again. Finding a time to do that prior to bedtime is key. So they've got a, they've got a phase of being able to come down from it in order to, to be able to sleep. I think Tony spoke about exercise early on. And we know that working out is really good for your cardiovascular system. We know that it can get rid of a lot of physical tension. And we can have a lot of cortisol and adrenaline streaming through our systems. You know, Tony asked all of you, what, you know, how does it feel when you're stressed or when you're anxious? And a lot of you talked about broken sleep or being forgetful or you know, being short-tempered or whatever those things were for you. And most of us will have ways of processing that. He talked about having a glass of wine or going for a jog or whatever it is for you. But it's really important that if exercise is part of your wind-down routine, that it's done in enough time for the heart rate to be able to regulate. I think the recommendations are about, about maybe, you know, three hours before. And on here it says, this is from the Sleep Foundation, it can take up to six hours for your body temperature to drop. So I think Tony's mentioned some of these previously, but there's all kinds of different apps that are helpful. And probably since I put these images on, there'll be more out there already. Some may be helpful for young people, others not. There's all kinds of different podcasts, relaxation podcasts. Uh, Tony spoke about audio books that are really, really helpful. And again, you know, a lot of our children will need coaching. There's a guy called Dr. Russell Barkley, and he talks about our children needing lots of prompts and reminders to be able to do these. And they won't remember on a daily basis how to do them or what to do. So it's really important that they have prompts and reminders um, at all times. We've talked about lights and wattage. We've talked about sensory aids, weighted blankets, skinny tubes. I've got the picture of the child and the adult um, nightwear there because there was one mum who told me her 17 year old son insisted on on climbing into bed with her every night and he was six foot two and quite a heavy lad and she wasn't getting any sleep at all and then when she realized that if he wore her silky pajamas and had her bed in slept like a log in his own bed um, she had no one could see him in his sleep no one could skiss him for wearing ladies flowery pajamas but it was the sensation of her fabric and it felt like her on his skin uh, that was the only way she got him in, in her bed. So whoever it was who said 14-year-olds getting into bed with them, try your pyjamas. <laughs> it's just a suggestion. It might not work. In terms of nutrition, you know, the, the psychological manifestations of fatigue and sleep and hunger are very, very similar. So sometimes, you know, we think we're hungry when really we're tired, and particularly children who don't get those physical cues quite right. Um, it's important because a lot of our kids won't eat during the day if their meds suppress their appetite. Um, and it's often late at night they want to kind of binge eat or eat an awful lot of things. And then they've got to digest those and process them. So it's really important to think about what kind of food is it, how long is it going to take to digest, and how helpful 
is that type of food for them to be able to, to relax and sleep. And it might be that the list of foods suggested by the Sleep Foundation, your child wouldn't touch with the barge pole. But it's about considering what's going to be the most helpful for them. And I think it's really important to monitor sleep. I don't know how many of you keep a sleep diary or whether, you know, you just think I've got two million things to do. Keeping a sleep diary is not really helpful. But it's really helpful to be able to identify when things are difficult so that you know to be able to avoid them or find ways around them. These are just some top tips, you know, the, for, for good sleep hygiene, really. Um, some families, the, the contentious thing about removal of phones, tablets and computer games and screens... Uh, that can be a real bone of contention and point of conflict for a lot of families. So having a negotiated, agreed house rule that everybody, including mum and dad, lock their thing away in a box at the end of the day um, might be more helpful. Um, these are just some suggestions and it might not, might not work for everybody, but having a really good routine is, is important. Transitions. We know our children struggle with transitions and change. And we know that kind of moving from wake to sleep is really, really difficult. Um, moving from home to school is difficult. Moving from school to home. Moving from holidays to school time is difficult. Transitions in any arena is really tricky. And thinking about how you manage the transition when it's towards the end of your day and you're not at your best. You know, you've had a full day too, as well as trying to support them with theirs. And I think it's really important that transitional routines are built into the family system, not just for that individual. And it's quite tricky when you've got children of different ages or of different needs to plan that. But again, if you've got an agreed plan and it's quite visual and everyone's agreed to it, I think that's really important. You know, some kind of transition soundtrack. So that could be like getting washed and dressed and going to bed music, or it could be a game that you play in terms of going to bed, or you could keep a competition household score about something that's got praise and rewards linked to it. I once worked in a school where the head teacher, and I must say that head teacher didn't stay at that school for very long, decided that it would be really helpful to use the Benny Hill music in transition of lessons. Not particularly helpful, but, you know, that was, that was their aspiration for thinking it would make people move around the building quicker. Uh, not really. Um, okay. So melatonin. Many of you might have experienced your child being prescribed with melatonin. Uh, the idea is it can induce sleep by up to 20 minutes, and it's not really prescribed for long-term use. They often hope that it's used for a short period of time and then... Um, in line with good sleep hygiene, that, that it helps kickstart and kickstart the melatonin to, to bring sleep on set on by at least 20 minutes. Um, but we know that with some children, it doesn't always work effectively. Um, I was talking to one family who's, she's, this lady's got twin girls, both around 13, 14. For one of them, she's been, well, for both of them, she's been prescribed circadin. And for one child, no problem, it's really helpful for the other. Um, her daughter gets really aggressive when she wakes up. It's got a huge impact on, on kind of her child's aggression. And when she's trialled her without the circuiting, the aggression in the morning disappears. So just, just, just beware. I mean, you know, I think you get side effects with paracetamol, don't you? There's a, there's a, a lot of research using light therapy to help bring sleep on. Uh, there's a lady in uh, 
the Netherlands called Dr. Sandra Cooey. She's a, she's a, a clinical uh, psychiatrist. She's one of the leads for ADHD Europe, and she's produced some research. I think there was a, an article in either the Times or the Guardian uh, last year or this year talking about the benefits of of using light therapy to kickstart the circadian rhythm and, and melatonin production. And Tony and I had the good fortune to visit her clinic last November, and it was really interesting. We walked into one of the therapy rooms, and the whole room, there's just a bank of light boxes around the room where people come 30 minutes a day for in the morning. And over a six to 12 week period, anxiety is reduced, mood is lifted, and sleep, is, is sleep onset is increased. So. There's a lot of research to suggest that's really helpful. I was so impressed. I bought one for each of my daughters for Christmas. They were hoping for Bobby Brown makeup, but they got a light boxer. <laughs> you know, I'm that kind of mother. Uh, in terms of delayed sleep phase, well, a lot of teenagers will struggle with this. You know, they'll, they'll kind of have an inclination to go to bed later than they should, and they wake up later than is considered normal, often feeling like really sluggish and often not waking up until sort of lunchtime. And, and the advice for that is, you know, if it's, a, if, it's, if it's a short period of time that the lag is, by bringing things forward by 15 minutes at a time. However, if it's a significant chunk of time, the suggestion is that you push it forward in three-hour chunks. So to try and transition somebody from a really poor sleep phase, say they're going to bed at half five in the morning, to try and change this, the advice is to start that maybe at the beginning of the school summer holidays. So you've got a nice six-week gap. Because if you're going to push everything forward by three hours, it's going to take a while to kickstart that routine and get it established. So, as I say, it was a bit of a whistle-stop tour of some of these topics. I hope some of it's been interesting and maybe you've got some ideas. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you.